Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business, and I think we've done it. Black Letter, the name, comes from the Gothic typeset that was originally used in the Gutenberg Press. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. Everything else was printed in regular type. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said. Black Letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well-settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify Black Letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. And now a word from our sponsors. And thank you to our sponsor, Alcunis. Alcunis is a one-stop resource for all your business and legal support services. Whether you need operations management support, website development, invention prototyping, patent searching, Alcunis has it covered. Alcunis understands you can't do everything yourself. Virtual operations and HR support, business formations and patent searches are just a few of the many services they provide either directly or through their network of specialized partners. Alcona serves law firms with professional management support, virtual paralegal assistance, and coordination of outsourced services, including the difficult task of e-discovery and deposition logistics. Think of Alconus as your legal services business concierge. You focus on your core services, and they'll take care of the rest. For more information, visit www.allconus.com. That's allconus.com. Welcome again to season two of Black Letter, the podcast. Today we have with us Deanna Burke and David Ludwig. So Deanna is the chief operating officer of the law firm Dunlap, Bennett & Ludwig. And we have her here to talk about first the fact that she is a a female executive at a company of more than 120 employees, global law firm, and what that's like uh, as a non-lawyer. Talk a little bit about her background and kind of the way She's doing things differently at the law firm, Um, a different model for managing and uh, operating uh, a law practice in a new age. So welcome, Deanna. Thanks for having me. Oh, and welcome, David. Again, back to the show. Thanks for having me as well. Happy to be back. So Deanna, tell us about your background and how you came to be the COO of a global law firm. Okay. Uh, Well, it was. uh, I started working at a, a software company in... Herndon, I really enjoyed kind of the technical side. So I was more of a very technical analyst, um, did some technical writing. But what was your degree in in college? So uh, math and history. So you're a math major? And a history major. That sounds incredibly exciting and sounds like they're kind of polar opposites. So after uh, college, you yeah. went to Herndon, Virginia. Yep. And uh, what was that company? Uh, that was Metron Aviation. Uh, so a small tech company that did aircraft management software. Okay. So very, uh, very niche kind of mm-hmm. group, uh, but I really excelled in that and really loved the work and technical side of things. So, okay. um, you know, I really have this principle that you start, you do whatever you're assigned, you do it well. And through that kind of principle, I just started working, uh, kind of working up the ladder from that. So from the very basic. So what year was this that you started at Metron? Well, I'm kind of uh, dating myself a little bit, but that was 2001. Okay, so I know this though, and I don't know the whole background, but before 2001, 
You were on the U.S. Olympic team for a little while. I wasn't on the Olympic team. I was uh, what we call shortlisted. So okay. through the years in, uh, actually, uh, I'm going to do a little humble brag right now. But in uh, 1994, I was ranked the number one young rider and newcomer in the world. So riding, just so riding everybody horses. knows, horses. <laughs> yes. So And the sport of three-day eventing. So give a shout out for that. Yay, eventing. And so what is three-day eventing? Um, I... Look at it as the triathlon for horses. So we do kind of three phases, um, and uh, yeah. So that was I was very competitive and loved doing that. Um, so you were the number one young horsewoman in the world in 1994, and you decided to quit. Um, what happened? I didn't decide to quit. Uh, part of the, I guess that's part of my life route, right? So uh, my horse got injured. Mm-hmm. So and I say. Not on the Olympic team. You have not just yourself to keep healthy. You have your horse to keep healthy. So your horse gets on the team too. Horse gets on the team too. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have a substitute uh, horse, so to speak. So uh, we didn't make the team. So that kind of came, um, you know, that part of my life. I chose to. My parents said, "Hey, you're going to have to finish your education, um, get a real job." Well, so is there a lot <laughs> of money in riding a horse? I mean, uh, is that a way to get wealthy? It's not a, it's a passion. It's not a, um, riding I, horses is a I passion. I was joking. <laughs> I think uh, a horse, de- money. W- w- a horse trips and breaks its leg and it's worth zero, right? Yes. It's I like have, a five minute thing that could happen. It's not oh, like you yeah, can you knock a horse a that's out. like, you know, yeah. going to Olympics and worth, you know, a half a million dollars one day and the next day is a, you know, hurt leg and he's out worth in the nothing. field nag is what we, it's not a nag. But. Okay. <laughs> love talking to horse people about horses. <laughs> so, all right. So then you went to college, William and Mary, I think. Yep. And then you graduated, you went to Metron Aviation. And then where'd you go from Metron? What'd you do at Metron? And then what happened? So it started as an analyst. So just mm-hmm. kind of crunching numbers and working through that. Um, I eventually went to program management. So okay. actually project management first and project and then more into program management. In 2011, Metron Aviation was bought out by Airbus acquisition um the so french company with the big planes so boeing has the planes that crash is that right and airbus <laughs> is the ones that right now they aren't crashing they're like the kind of top of the list right now okay because so. <laughs> because they they don't have that software glitch thing right they right you know told okay. anybody recently so that's good okay so that's good um, so you went to work for the french company right we, our company got a, a acquisition through Airbus. So okay. um, when they uh, took us over, I kind of transitioned. I initially worked for kind of primarily the FAA and I transitioned when uh, Airbus uh, took over, I transitioned to the commercial side. So I went to developing programs for different countries, so, okay. uh, Singapore, Australia, uh, Bogota, Colombia, South Africa. So that was really great experience to kind of incorporate uh, management of a lot of different principles and ideas in different countries have all different, you know. So were you re- managing groups of people or teams? Teams. So you have uh, developers, of course, uh, project managers from the other groups. So the other organizations kind of in China, you know, even in China, we worked there a bit too. So, um, yeah, so you're communicating kind of the technical side of things, you know, the, the, talking to developers and also talking to more of the management side political side political side of so it, yeah. my understanding of the aviation world and i i was a pilot and i was on an airport commission and that commission consisted 100 percent of of men um that it's a male dominated industry yes. did you find that was the same when 100%. you were working 
hundred percent. So, um, so how many other women were kind of in your management level at Airbus, like in the kind of role you were in? Um, there are a few. I could probably count them on one hand, but uh, especially in uh, going to the other countries was even more noticeable. I think the United States was a bit. Um, you know, more progressive in that way. Um, so weird to hear that. Well, <laughs> not more progressive than maybe Singapore, but more progressive than Europe. I'm surprised. Um, not say in the sense in that in that world. So okay, in the go, world of aviation. In the world of aviation, gotcha. and it wasn't there was there are many women that do great work in aviation. Um, but I went to a couple of conferences where, I, well, I called them manferences because I felt like I was like one of the only women up at the you know panel discussing things. Um, I had one experience where I had a colleague that came with me, actually somebody that worked with me. Uh-huh. I was managing that, uh, the whole program and people in the group in the audience were asking my colleague the questions. And the I The person was, who worked for you, they were yes, asking him the questions because yes. he was, uh, yeah. And I would have to interrupt because he really didn't know. So <laughs> I had to talk to them. I'd like to see that. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, but I, I actually know the answer yeah, to that because so I'm It was boss. very interesting, but you, you know, I, you kind of have to politely interrupt and say, well, you know, let me, let me discuss this, um, and answer for, um, my colleague. Right. Well, answer in place of your colleague. So, that yeah. leads me to my question, how you became the COO. You're, I think it's fair to say that even still in the United States, law tends to have more men than women practicing. Um, and I think the firm that you work at, it's sort of a reflection of that. There are certainly female partners, but it's a male-dominated profession. And from what I understand, you're the boss of the, the company. So how does, how does that work? And you're not a lawyer. And you're not a man and you're running a firm full of, not completely full of, but a lot of lawyers and men with strong personalities. And I dare say, maybe David can back me up on this. Lawyers have fairly big egos and fairly strong convictions about how they want to run things. How, how, do, you, how, do, you, how do you deal with that? I think that's, I think it's 100% accurate, but I think it's dealing with the same way of any, um, even Back in aviation world, mm-hmm. you had the same personalities. You have people that know what they're doing and they're very smart and they say, hey, it should be done this way. And right. I come in and say, hey, well, let's evaluate this and, and see what we can do better. I think part of the, um, when I started at uh, DBL, a lot of it is to one, understand what they are doing very mm-hmm. well. Um, and then, you know, gain their trust and understanding and actually kind of, have that knowledge base. Don't say we're just going to do this. Get their buy-in, which we do. Um, and I think it's been successful. You have one small victory at a time, and they start right. trusting you. And after you get trust, they start saying, "Oh, she really knows what she's doing," and is more willing to kind of adopt it more quickly. Well, so um, tell me about when you joined the firm. The firm was filing more trademarks than any other law firm in the United States, yes. and had a sort of jumbled structure for the process of filing trademarks. I think it filed 1,400 trademarks in the US or registered 1,400, filed 3,500 last year. Uh, How did you detangle that web? And did you have to learn about trademarks? Yes. Sometimes I joke when, uh, you know, I came into the law firm initially, I knew like, what's the difference between a trademark and a copyright? I had no idea. Um, So it was like part of the process of learning. I went into that. But now you know. I know a lot more than I, uh, yeah, I know a lot. <laughs> you know, sometimes I hear people talking, I'm like, oh, that's not a, that's not a copyright. That's a trademark. You know, so it's kind of, um, you know, now my newsfeed is filled with like trademark stuff, which is kind of scary. You know, it used to be aviation stuff. Now it's like trademark or, you know, business law, employment law. So, 
um, yeah, it's interesting, uh, but I think you have to get involved to be able right. to solve the problems. And I think managers or anybody at any level, if you don't know how to do it yourself and understand what's going on, you can't solve the problem. Thank you to our sponsor today, Dunlap, Bennett & Ludwig. Dunlap, Bennett & Ludwig solves complex business problems with smart solutions, acting as advocates and advisors to their clients with diverse professional backgrounds from MBAs to PhDs to bankers to military officers, real-world experience for real-world problems. Dunlap, Bennett & Ludwig doing better law. To find out more, visit www.dblawyers.com. So today, um, tell me about what the firm's doing operationally. What what have you implemented that's different than an other, I mean, you've never managed another law firm, but <laughs> to your knowledge, I, I believe that you've had a number of firms join the law firm since you started there, merge into the law firm and become part of DBL. Uh, and they've had different traditions and different management styles. What's different about DBL? I think what's unique with DBL is that uh, with kind of my leadership and with everybody that works uh, kind of on the support staff side. So we have a whole marketing team. We have a client services team. Mm -hmm. We really take the management of all the support away, you know, that we will handle that um, and manage the support. So um, each attorney coming in doesn't have to worry about paying the rent or... Well, so you say doesn't have to worry, but lawyers like to be in charge of people and things. Right, they, so. that's a good point. That's actually a that's actually a very unique thing that we've been working to implement at the firm is to, um, I don't want to say take away because that's not the right concept. It's like we want to support to say we will explain manage explain to them explain to them we will for for example resources. So we have offices across the United States, some in China. You know, we have offices all over the place and great associates in each of those locations. Right. And with different types of workload, you have ramping up and ramping kind of ebb and flow of litigation work or right. even trademark work, you know, um, busy times. So being able to transfer kind of work to different associates and different offices makes us extremely versatile right. um, and cost effective, right? So we don't have associates sitting, sitting waiting for work at a particular office. We can shift them to other offices. So what's the challenge with that, though? What the huge challenge there is that every, um, I shouldn't say every attorney, but any um, partner that has kind of managed their own firm in the past. More senior More partner. senior partners would like to have in the past said, this is my associate. This is, you know, associate X over here is my associate and they Not work directly Not servitude, but <laughs> they're yeah. my chain of they command. Do they yeah. do my bidding. Exactly. Kind of, that's their lackey. <laughs> And they don't want to give up their lackey. That's yeah. what's going on. And that's and the traditional way it's been done for years in law yeah. firms in the United States, too. Well, yeah. So, David, you've worked at a big law firm and other firms besides DBL. So so what is the traditional way? What's different about DBL that you, you and Deanna, between the two of you, see? Yeah. I mean, the traditional model is these practice groups where there's one partner, three or four associates gather around them. And if another partner wants to use an associate, they have to beg for permission and ask, you know, pretty please, could I have a couple hours of your person's time? But it's it creates these little firms within a firm. It's these Fiefdoms, tiny groups. I think they call yeah. them sometimes or stovepipes. Right. So you set up your medieval castle and you put your little associates inside of your medieval castle. Right. And the and, problem there yeah. is that what if that partner with those associates doesn't have enough work or has too much work? Or how do you, you know, deal with the ebbs and flows in the workflow? It becomes workflow? very inefficient, right? It does. Yeah. So I guess it sounds like one of the biggest challenges is 
since that's the the what David described is the structure that people are used to and expect. Like I've got people that work for me and it makes me more important. But what you're saying is there's not much value in that. The value is in partners being able to bill and having associates at their highest and best use. And it makes people happier. And it takes, why would you want to manage someone? I mean, I guess that's a question I would ask you. What, why would an attorney maybe, or David, either of you, why would any attorney want to manage another person? Is it, there's got to be some value in that, in the traditional model. What, what does that come from? Well, I think the traditional model, law as a profession is one of the few professions that still has sort of an, an apprenticeship component. There is mentoring that's important for young attorneys to learn skill sets, but that's sort of substantive management, right? I'm we still do that. Yeah. And so, but the truth. So you have, so there's a mentorship program that overlays this. You don't lose that. Right. But ma- managing scheduling, other stuff, that's where I think the efficiencies get lost. And that's where, what the Anna can speak Okay. To. But well, so if I'm a lawyer and I have a case, because lawyers have cases, that's what they do. Um, and I have a case and I want associates to work on it. I get to tell them what to do on the case. Definitely. Okay. But if that associate needs to move desks or needs to order more paper or wants to, you know, has some kind of HR problem, then you handle that. So that's not the partner's problem. Um, So, but that takes some measure of power out of the partner's hands, but it seems like it's not useful power. I'm making your case for you. I don't know. Is that what you've seen? I think because you're the one who argues with everybody. It has been adopted. You know, (laughs) in some cases it's harder than others, but I think we're getting there. And part of uh, what we're implementing in the firm is actually having, uh, we're developing a piece of software that will allow partners or anybody to kind of view into who's available. So transparency. So you can say, oh, this associate's clearly watching Netflix four or five hours a day, I feel like maybe we should have that associate hey, do have some the time more and they have the skill set. They're great at, uh, you know, writing briefs. So, so we say, look at that type of skill set. This is who's available. And, you know, we're going like, to have oh, to buy okay. that software or we bought it. Does it work? It's, it's almost there. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm excited about that. I'm using so, my software background to help build that. Hopefully that with the developer. I'm the developer. Soon. <laughs> so what other things at the firm, what, what's the biggest challenge that you've faced since uh, joining DBL since becoming a, a COO, a boss of um, bosses. I, th- I think the challenge sometimes is to take things one step at a time. You know, there's so much you can do to improve. It's just so it can be overwhelming. Uh, okay. And I think it can be overwhelming even for change from the side from an attorney's perspective as well. So you have to implement it in a stepped approach. And I think I sometimes have to take a step back and say, okay, there's a lot to be done here. What's kind of step one? And I think that's the challenge of not saying, oh, we can change everything tomorrow. Right? Gotcha. If you want to, you're like, oh, there's so much we can do. You know, so. Somewhere between, between Elon Musk and <laughs> right. um, you know, Robert Shapiro, you know, in terms of lawyer and technology. But it's exciting. Or, or Alan Dershowitz. Yeah. I don't know. Is he out of favor now? Didn't he do something recently that people didn't like? I think there was some headlines, yeah. Yeah, do you, what, I don't remember. Maybe he, I think he was tied into the Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, yeah. Epstein. Yeah. Well, yes. anyway, okay. Before <laughs> Epstein, <digress>. Dershowitz, <laughs> the lawyer of lawyers, and then Elon Musk, the tech of tech guys. Right. Maybe the extremes. It's, you got to fall in the middle. I think so. I mean, I, I think it's exciting to be at the firm where we are doing things completely different. And yeah. I think that when we talk to other partners um, looking to kind of join DBL, that's something that's really attractive to them. They're like, I don't want to manage... Um, some of these HR issues. I don't want to manage moving their desks. So, so I if think I'm that's a partner attractive. joining DBL, uh, do I talk to you as well? 
Of course. Can I ask you questions? Of course. And can I ask other partners questions? Are you going to direct me, ask this partner or talk to that partner? How does, how does that, what do you say to part people who are interested? Hey, this is a different firm model. Um, how do I bring my firm into your firm or how do we, how do we make that change? How do we make the change or how do we talk to them about the change? I guess both. You decide. You tell me. <laughs> so, what do you want to talk about? Um, initially, when we were talking to any prospective partners looking to come over, they mm-hmm. can talk to me. They can We talk to them about kind of our philosophy and our culture. Okay. But we obviously, they can talk to any of our partners that are experiencing it. Um, we're very open and honest with like, hey, go talk to anybody you want to talk to. So they do that. Um, and then when the actual transition goes, which we have done with several uh, partners that have joined us. Uh, we look into what they're currently doing mm-hmm. and work to fold that into our system. So we don't say tomorrow you have to change everything exactly the way we do things. It's not one size fits all. Not at all. It's we're going to build the, if you're a square peg, we're going to build an octagonal hole, not a round <laughs> hole. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. And we try to be flexible. And I think that's part of what's different. We don't say everybody has to do X, Y, and Z. If it's within our framework, we're happy. Well, so David, do you have any other comments about the firm or questions for Deanna that I've left off? Maybe you can help me grill yeah, her a little well, bit. I haven't I mean, asked any really hard questions, it seems like. We've talked about operations and streamlining things, but um, can you speak to what that means for the clients? Because uh, obviously it makes the firm more efficient internally, but what does the client get out of it? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really um, good question. I think that ultimately there's a lot of benefit um, to the clients. And I think there's kind of two aspects of that. I think there is um, just being able to projectize law in general is make things more efficient, more transparent for the client as well, which is very important. They know what to expect. And we're working, we're constantly working on kind of improving what I call uh, case management, not that much different than project management, right? So we have great case managers already, and we're just implementing new processes to add into that to help them. Um, so I think that's great. And then just our efficiency across the board. So we have um, this matrix kind of work, you know, here are these different associates. Right. Uh, because of that, we're very efficient and our rates are very reasonable. So it costs the client less because you're achieving better efficiencies and delivering the same services, things like that. Um, and we have, um, we can have... You know, since we have many offices, we're getting larger. We have a lot of power in negotiating kind of contracts as well. So even some of things like uh, legal research, things like that, we can get good, great deals through kind of the coordination of, you know, numbers. Right. Every office doesn't have their own legal research subscription. Exactly. Yeah. It's a national subscription. So there's the economy of scale factor. Exactly. Too. So what has been the most surprising thing to you in moving from an industry where you're a project manager aviation, technology, software to a law firm? What's the biggest, either cultural or operational, or what's the biggest surprise to you? What didn't you expect? I don't know if it's a surprise. Um, I do. I have adapted a bit to the technical knowledge and skill of attorneys versus developers, which is obvious. Do you mean lack of technical knowledge and skill? <laughs> different skills. Like you need Barney-sized buttons that are Special purple skills. and blank different, for them to push? Different set of technical skills. Let's, um, let's be honest, attorneys okay, generally attorneys, like, are don't, challenged. You give them an Excel file and they look at you like you're like crazy. So Even young attorneys. It's yes. weird. It's yes, almost like yes. they de-teach you how to use it. You go to law school and they're like, okay, Here's a computer. We're going to teach you how not to use it now. You used <laughs> it in college, but now you're going to learn. This is how you don't use a computer. So that's been a challenge. Yeah. I don't know if I'm that's sure. the hardest thing, but I think that is definitely a challenge. And I've 
learn to kind of adapt to that. I feel, and David, I don't know how you feel, I feel like it's almost a point of pride that lawyers feel like they're technically inept, that they're so cerebral about law and they know so much that they can't, they could never say, oh, I can write a JavaScript file or figure out an Excel spreadsheet. It's almost a, it's almost a thing, like it's something that they prefer. Yeah. Do, you, do you get that feeling? Sometimes from some lawyers, I get that it's feeling. It's definitely the old school, you know, have a banker's lamp on your desk and you're kind of very traditional. And, you know, I mean, the Which old model. Like $12 Yeah, Amazon that I now. grew up with was, you know, older attorneys would print out a draft of a letter or a brief, handwrite all their edits, hand it to their secretary. Secretary would type it in. Give it's it like, back to yeah, them. it's like you've yeah. got a word processor right there. You could just type it in. Um, but uh, there's some kind of old school training that people have been brought up on that's very inefficient and it's not doing the clients any favors. I think that's changed. I mean, at least at DBL, it's certainly changing. I've seen an adoption of even like our internal wiki that we have. Initially, like some of the attorneys, I, I don't think any of the attorneys were really on it. And today they are all use it. So The wiki? Yep. So what, what is the internal wiki that you have at the firm? Uh, so we use a tool called Confluence, uh, which again is kind of from my more technical background. It's using the, the Jira. You've probably heard of Jira software, mm-hmm. maybe not. But um, so they do, it's just an internal wiki that's just, you know, we put everything on there. So it's a lot of internal communication, um, education, uh, one place. So handbooks, marketing stuff. Practice, Everything. practice procedures, templates for attorneys, engagement letters. Like, don't yeah. reinvent the wheel. We've written this, you know, this cease and desist letter. So instead of time. searching a huge server file for like the most updated template and checking with everyone, then most updated files always on this this wiki. Exactly, and gotcha. it's like has a search capability like Google. Like it's just you type in a couple of words and boom, it pops up. So I think yeah. finally the attorneys are really starting to adopt it. So I've you know I look at the usage like every month, and I'm really seeing kind of the more, yeah. you know, they're using it more often. And I think it's reflecting in kind of the practice. Good. Um, all right. Well, oh, yeah. uh, Deanna, do you have any closing remarks or thoughts? What's our, what's your, what's your slogan? What's your motto? What do you live by At the, as a law firm manager, not as like somebody who rides horses part-time and makes well, poor investment decisions? <laughs> well, I think that, um, actually, I think they are related, horses and being successful. I think you have to be kind of passionate about what you do. So I think it's very closely related. Like, do whatever you do and do it well. Okay. Well, thanks, Deanna, for joining us. Thank you, David. And now let's step aside and have a word from our sponsors. After four years of exciting growth, recently named Washington Business Journal's fastest growing real estate brokerage and fifth fastest growing company overall, Pearson Smith Realty continues to build upon their vision of building an agent-focused brokerage dedicated to providing the ultimate client experience. Servicing the DMV in West Virginia, if you're an agent looking to work in a collaborative atmosphere while taking advantage of the industry's best compensation packages with unlimited value propositions, or if you're a buyer or seller looking for an agent that will go above and beyond to find your dream home, visit www pearsonsmithrealty.com today or call 571-386-1075. Thank you for joining us. 
Find us wherever you get your podcasts at Apple iTunes Store or Google Play and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks for joining us on Black Oak.